Welcome to episode 33 of the Running on Ohm podcast. This is your host, Julia Hanlon, and I'm excited to have Dick Beardsley, former professional runner, motivational speaker, and author on the podcast. Dick is a renowned American distance runner who is best known for his 1982 Boston Marathon called Duel in the Sun with Alberto Salazar, where he ran 2 hours, 8 minutes, 53 seconds. Dick is also a two-time Olympic Trials Marathon qualifier. He is featured in the Guinness Book of World Records for being the only person to ever run 13 consecutive personal bests in the marathon. After retiring from professional running in 1988, Dick had a series of near-fatal accidents that left him addicted to painkillers. Dick eventually became sober, returned to his active running lifestyle, and was inspired to start the Dick Beardsley Foundation that educates people on the disease of chemical dependency. In this episode, we discuss Dick's running background, from what inspired him to begin running in high school, to his time as a professional runner. He recounts the 1982 Boston Marathon duel in the sun with Alberto Salazar and the challenges he encountered during the race. He shares his journey of chemical dependency from how he overcame his addiction to painkillers to starting the Dick Beardsley Foundation. Dick reveals his relationship with running now and thoughts on the upcoming Boston Marathon. Also, if you would like to help others find the Running on Ohm podcast, feel free to leave a review on iTunes. I hope you enjoy the show. Oh, welcome, Dick, to the Running on Ohm podcast. Well, Julia, thank you. I'm uh, really excited to be out with you today. So give me your background. How did you first get into running? When did you first lace up your shoes? Well, I first laced up my shoes uh, the first part of September of 1973. I was 17 years old. I was just starting my junior year of high school. And up to that point, I, I, I was really not into athletics. I was into hunting and fishing and trapping and milking cows and things like that. And, and then girls kind of started to, you know, catch my eye a little bit, but I was the most bashful, shy kid you could ever imagine. And I, I mean, I couldn't even say hi to a girl, let alone actually talk to one. But I noticed that a lot of my buddies that were good in sports and went out for the athletic teams, you know, they'd be, they'd earn a, a high school letter jacket and they'd be wearing it around school. And they always had girls hanging all over them. So I thought, well, man, if I could just earn myself a letter jacket, maybe the girls will, you know, come to me instead of me having to go to them. So, like most American young boys, you know, they all want to play football. And uh, so I went out for football, and honest to goodness, I got game tackled right after practice started by about 20 guys. And I remember getting up out of that pile of guys, and, you know, standing there, my, my helmet was on crooked, my shoulder pads were sticking out, and my football pants were down to my ankles. And at that point, I'm thinking, there's not a girl alive that is worth going through this. And I quit. I walked off the field. You know, my entire football career lasted about 43 and a half minutes. And at the time, I was, you know, pretty devastated. You know, when you're a teenager and, you know, your self-esteem perhaps isn't real high and mine wasn't at that point in my life and and uh but as I look back and it didn't take long you know it's probably one of the best things that happened so a, a friend of mine suggested I you know try going out for cross-country running and back then you know cross-country was at least at my school it was the sport you could do you you would do because it didn't cut anybody and if you weren't good at anything else so I went out for cross-country and I'll never forget this our coach says, all right, boys, we're going to do the around-the-block run. And I thought, well, gosh, I've never run before, but I know I can run around the block and stay with my teammates. So, you know, our coach lines us up out in front of our high school, and he blows his whistle. And, and let's just say this, that what they called the around-the-block run was actually 3.2 miles long. And oh I had to God. walk. Yeah, I know it. I had to walk the last mile. I couldn't run it. By the time I got back to my high school parking lot, all my teammates and my coach had already showered and gone home. But I remember, I can still remember, when I crossed that imaginary finish line in the, into our high school parking lot, I remember thinking to myself, gosh, Dick, I don't know how far you just ran and walked, but you made it. 
and I, and I start thinking, gosh, I bet you if I, if I work real hard at it and do what my coach tells me to do and believe in myself and have faith, I thought, I, I know I can make the varsity squad and earn my letter jacket and get the date with a girl. And, and that was my whole inspiration <laughs> of how I got started running is just so I could get a date with a girl. <laughs> and when was it clear that you had some natural talent? It took a while. I'll be honest with you. I, I didn't even make the varsity squad that my first year, but when I started thinking I, I might be able to get good enough to at least make the varsity squad, I was so determined after not making the varsity squad that, you know, I, I ran the whole, I ran through the winter and then the following summer I ran, I didn't go off for track my, that, that following spring running around in, on a dirt track just didn't seem like a very fun thing to do. But I, I ran then almost every day that summer between my junior and senior year. And I remember coming back from my first day of cross-country practice, my senior year of high school, and our coach lines us up out in the front of the high school again, and we do that exact same around-the-block run. And the weird thing is it was exactly one year to the day since I'd done it before. But this time, all my teammates, instead of finishing in front of me, they all finished behind me. Now, that's not saying a whole lot because – you know, we didn't have a very good team, but at that point, I thought, "Wow, look what, look how far I'd come in a year from just, you know, really dedicating myself and getting out there and running and, and believing in myself." And I'll saying all that, I, um, I, I, I did make, you know, the varsity squad and 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 whatnot, but I never did qualify to run in the state meet in high school cross country or track. But the seed was planted, and then when I got out of high school, I went to um, uh, the University of Minnesota slash Waseca. It's a it was a, a small um, agricultural college, part of the, the University of Minnesota, but it was a, just a very small school. And I went there, and things really started to progress. Then because I could I could run further, I could run up to ten thousand meters, and it seemed like the further I ran, the better I did. And the one thing that really kind of maybe kept me going and, and really inspired me. One day my coach, Dr. John Folkrod, who I'm still in close contact with, he was a Aww. wonderful coach and person. But one day after practice, he put his arm around me and he says, you know, Dick, I really believe you can become as good of a runner as you want to be. And I never, ever forgot that. But, you know, I, I, I honestly, at that point, I never thought running would take me as far as it did, that's for sure. And so tell me, why do you think you are good at long distances? Obviously, you've had tremendous success in the marathon, holding the world record for running 13 consecutive personal bests in the marathon. So what is it about the longer distances that suits you? You know, that's a good question. Obviously, I don't have a lot of fast-twitch muscle because it takes me a while to get going. It's kind of like a, it's kind of like a locomotive that's pulling, a, you know, 100 brake cars behind it. It takes it a while to, you know, uh, to get up some steam. And I noticed in high school that, you know, I ran the, the mile and the two mile, but, you know, I did better in the two mile. And I noticed that I actually did even better in cross country because, you know, I could run three miles. And, and then when I got into college and I could run, you know, 5,000 and 10,000 meters, you know, the thing that I've, I've found throughout my entire running career is, you know, I could run competitive races and 10Ks and 10 miles and half marathons and things like that, but you know what? I I couldn't – I don't know, maybe because I specifically didn't train for 10,000 meters. That was – once I got out of college, it was kind of always more marathon-type training, but I could, you know, I could pretty much hold my 10K pace for the entire marathon. So even though I might not have been – you know, the fastest marathon or the fastest 10,000 meter, I could hold that pace for a long time or possibly even increase it. And so um, I was very fortunate. If you look at my, my personal best in like five and 10,000 meters, you know, I should be about a, you know, a, a 216, 217 marathoner, you know, but I was fortunate to, you know, get down to 208, not, you know, and I should be a, a 27 minute 10K runner. Um, but my, my best was 29.12, and that was on the road, 
But part of it is, once I got out of college, junior college, I never ran 10,000 meters on the track again. And I, I look back now, I, I don't have any regrets, but if I could do something different, it would have been fun just to maybe take uh, six months and really train specifically for a 10K on the track and, and see if I, you know, how fast I could have got. But you know what? It never happened. And I'll tell you one thing, I'm, uh, it's never going to happen now because my, my fast days are a long, long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> and so what happened after college for you to then have dreams of the Olympics? How did that transition under Well, you know, happen? that's a great question. And I tell you, I was um, on the farm milking cows. I was going to be getting married and, and uh, hadn't run in three or four months. Um, you know, I was, I was starting to do what I was going to do, what I thought the rest of my life. And one afternoon, I'm getting ready to, to go out to the barn and milk. Um, but before I did, I w- went out to our post box off by the side of the road, and I grabbed the mail, and I brought it into the kitchen. And I'm standing there in my dirty coveralls, and I, I throw the mail on the table, and I notice my, one of my running magazines subscription hadn't run out yet and I saw it sitting there so I had a, a few minutes so I just picked it up and I started paging through it and there was an article in there this is like 1970 early 1979 and and I there was an article in there on what it took or what the qualifying standards were to qualify for the 1980 Olympic marathon trials you had to run two hours 21 minutes and 56 seconds well my best was about 10 minutes slower than that. I'd run a few marathons, you know, in college and whatnot. And but I remember standing there, reading that article, and then I thought all of a sudden in my mind popped out what Coach Folkrod had told me about, you know, I, I really think you can be as good of a runner as you want to be. And I thought, gosh, you know, I can milk cows when I'm 40, 50, 60 or beyond, but, you know, I, I, I can't pursue how good of a runner I can become or Olympic dreams when I'm that age, so I made the decision right then. I went out to the barn, I milked my cows. I remember telling my dad, yep, Dad, I'm I'm going to put milking cows on uh, the back burner for a while. And the next day I drove to the Twin Cities and I found a little one-room apartment in a little town on the outskirts of the Twin Cities. And it cost me 400 bucks a month. I, I wasn't sure how I was going to pay for it each month, but I figured I'll figure it out somehow. And I started training at least twice, if not three times a day, and but I had, I didn't have a dime in my pocket. Any extra money I had went to pay my rent, and you know I did little odds and ends to try to help ends meet and things like that. And but I uh, the the shoe, the one pair of running shoes I had, they were so worn out, that I had to duct tape them together just to you know to keep them in one piece, and they were hurt my feet, and and I knew. You know, if I had asked my dad for 50 bucks for to buy a pair of running shoes, I knew what it, the, the answer was going to be. It was going to be a big, fat no, because my dad at the time thought I was crazy with what I was doing. And, and he, my dad, honestly, if, if he was still alive today, he would be the first to tell you, he was waiting for me to fail so he could look me in the eye and tell me, I told you so. Now, saying all that, my dad went on to become probably my biggest supporter I had with my running, which made made it even more special. Mm, beautiful. So tell listeners a little bit about specifically the marathon that a lot of people have heard about. Your duel in the sun, um, 1982, and you running with Alberto Salazar. Were you training partners before that? What was your introduction no. with him? Well, yeah, well, you know, of course I knew who Alberto was, but and I, you know, kind of followed them a little bit. It was a little different following people back then because, you know, the only time you read a result is if you, if the local newspaper, which they hardly ever did, would put a result of a road race or tracks in there, or you'd have to wait for the uh, a month for like track and field news to come out to get the results. There was no internet back then, but uh, I'd never, I'd never ever raced against Alberto before the 1982 Boston Marathon, and but you know. When I decided, my coach Bill Squires and I decided you know, that we're going to run Boston. You know, I, I was fortunate to have won the very first London Marathon in 1981, and everybody says, well, "Why didn't you go back to defend?" And and the reason I didn't was because, you know, Boston is that just that special race. It was then, it is today, and it will always be, you know, the most 
prestigious marathon in the world just because of its longevity and all the people that are the great runners that have been on that course. And so we set out a, a, a plan that and basically for six months I ate, slept, and, and dreamed about running the Boston Marathon. And I even, you know, the winter of 1982 and I think late January of 82, I moved from Minnesota that, uh, for three months down to Atlanta, Georgia, not to get out of the cold weather. The cold weather never bothered me. I mean, I ran when it was 40, 50 below zero actual temperature. But the reason I went to Atlanta was the part of Minnesota I'm from is very um, flat, and so I needed. I knew I needed to get on hills. And so I went to Atlanta, and Coach Squire <laughs> found some guy that was on belonged to the Atlanta Track Club, and and that was a, a single guy that had an extra room in his condo, and and he let me stay there, and we went on to become good friends, and I was even at his wedding and everything. And um, there was another runner that lived just down the block that I ran into that was a real good runner, Dean Matthews. So him and I trained, you know, two or three times a week together. And, uh, man, I I mean, I lived and breathed Boston to get ready for that race. And, um, you know, it's it's crazy, but, you know, to think that it's been 32 years since we had that, what they call the duel in the sun. But I can remember that that day, that race, like I ran it this morning. Now, would you like me to, you know, tell talk yeah. about the race? For people who don't know what the Duel in the Sun was, yeah, I would love to hear. Yeah. Well, back then, the Boston Marathon started at 12 noon, which, you know, isn't the greatest time to start a marathon. And the thing, you know, you're being from that area, you know, running a marathon in Boston in April, weather-wise, is a real crapshoot. I mean, I've I've seen it sleet and snow out there, and I've seen it 80, 90 degrees or warmer. And on that day, it happened to be about, you know, 70, 75 degrees at the start, and it got to about 80. But I remember standing on that front row, and the the starter putting up his pistol, and he hollers one minute. And, you know, I, I remember looking over to my right, and I see Alberto Salazar, and he didn't even look at me. And I, I look to my left, and I see Bill Rogers, you know, four-time winner of Boston. And I'm looking up and down this front row, and I'm seeing all these world-class athletes and Olympians from around the globe. And... And I'll be honest with you, a thought went into my mind thinking, what the heck are you doing on the same starting line with these guys? But before it came out my other ear, I thought, no, you deserve to be here because you've done the work. And, and with that, the gun went off, and Alberto shot out of there like, you know, he was shot from a rocket, and I was right along his side. And we went through the first mile in four minutes and 33 seconds, and I was <laughs> – I know it. That's it's crazy, and I'm and I'm hanging on for dear life. And you know, when you're hanging on for dear life, and you still got 25.2 miles to go, that's not a real good feeling to have. But I, I knew I was nervous and, and excited, and uh, so I thought, well, you, you know, just you'll be fine in the next mile. Well, I hit mile two, and I felt worse than I did at mile one. And so I, but I just kept telling myself, Dick, you're going to start feeling good. You're going to get in the groove. And I'll never forget when I hit the third mile, and now I'm about one of the most positive people you will ever meet, but when I hit that third mile, the first thing that crossed my mind was to drop out. I felt that bad. And I look back and I think, just think if I would have done that, how different my life would be today. And But I thought, no, Dick, you can't drop out. You've worked too hard for this. Just hang in there. And by mile four, I, I still didn't feel any better, but... At mile four, I didn't feel any worse. And at that point, that was a huge confidence builder for me. And then, you know, in the next couple of miles, I started feeling really good. And then this lead pack I was in, it was fairly large. But as each mile went by, it got smaller and smaller. Now, that day, there wasn't a cloud in the sky, and it was probably the first nice, warm day they'd had in Boston since the previous fall. And so there were there was about a million and a half spectators they, they figured out on the course. And back then there was no crowd control. So they were virtually right on top of us. And by 17 miles, it was down to two of us, Alberto Salazar. And as the Boston newspaper dubbed me Dick Beardsley, the country bumpkin from Minnesota. And, and nobody, <laughs> nobody gave me or, for that matter, anyone else much of a chance against Alberto. 
So, you know, what happens when you turn at 17 miles onto Commonwealth Avenue, that's where the, 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 the four miles of hills begin, the four hills. And I remember Coach Bill Squires told me, he says, Dickie, when you get to the hills, if, if anybody's still with you or, you, you know, there's people around you, I want you to run up those hills as hard as you can. And then on the little downside, on the backside of those hills, I want you to run even harder. So every hill I came to, I ran it as hard as I could trying to shake Alberto, and the first three, nothing happened. And I remember getting to the base of Heartbreak Hill, and the crowds were unbelievable. And I remember literally running that up that hill as hard as I could, and I get to the top, and I kind of glanced over my shoulder, and Alberto was still right in my left pocket, hip pocket. And I remember coming the, down the backside, and I was literally sprinting like I was doing the 100-meter dash, trying to break away from him. And I remember getting to the bottom of the hill uh, on the back to the Heartbreak Hill. I didn't even have to turn to see if Alberto was still there. He was so close I could hear him breathing. And at that point, I could no longer honestly feel my legs. And the thought of running five more miles at the pace that we were running or faster, I was almost getting sick to my stomach. But I knew this. As bad as I was hurting, I knew Alberto had to be hurting pretty bad, too, because the way Alberto liked to run races was to be in front. And he hadn't been in front since we broke away from everybody. And so I knew I had to have him on the ropes, but he had me on the ropes, too. And But I knew this. I knew no matter how bad I was hurting, I knew I could run one more mile. And so, excuse me, the you know, the good Lord has given us, this incredible gift between our ears called the brain, and that's some powerful stuff. And we didn't have goos and gels and jelly beans and all those things back then to, to take to help us, you know, get through those last few miles. But the one thing we have that does work better than any of those is the brain. And my brain was able to convince my body that, okay, body, here's the deal, buddy. All you got to do is run one more mile, and you're going to win this race. And the next thing I know, there's mile 22. I still got a little bit of a lead, and I just set it again. One more mile, Dick, and there's mile 23, and I set it again in 24, and I set it again. And then as long as I live, I'll never, ever forget what I saw next. In front of me there on the road in blue and gold paint, it said 25.2 miles. And then right below that, it said one mile to go. And at that oh. point, I got so weak-kneed and rubber-legged, I honestly did not know if I'd be able to take another step. And for some point at that reason, tears, I just started streaming down my cheeks. And then for some reason at that point, I flashed back to that day in May of 1975 when I walked off my high school stage, the first one in my family to get a high school diploma, and I walked out to where my mom and dad were sitting, and my dad but an eighth grade education was crying. And I remember handing my dad my diploma and he handed me an envelope and he said to me, Dee, this is your graduation gift from your mom and I. So I opened it up and I pulled out this small piece of paper and in my dad's eighth grade handwriting, it said, Dee, this is good for round trip airfare to the Boston Marathon. Maybe someday you'll want to run it. Love, mom and dad. Now here I am not only running it, but I'm winning it, and I knew my folks were back home in Minnesota watching it on television, and I remember thinking, Dick, you've got to get your mind off your mom and dad. Think about something else. And so I finally, I finally thought back to a terrible flying date I once went on in high school. So I got up, my mind off my mom and dad, back into the race, and now we're down to about 900 meters to go, and I had about an arm-length lead, the biggest lead I'd had all day long. And I knew Alberto didn't have a great finishing kick, but I knew it was better than the one I had. So I thought, Richard, you got to go and push like never before. And as I pushed off with my right leg to kind of give that one last hard surge to break open that gap, I got the biggest Charlie horse in my right hamstring. I'm sure I was dehydrated. And it literally set me up in the air. It hurt so bad. And Alberto went flying by me like I was standing still. He had, you know, five meters, then he got 10, then 20. And at one point, he had almost a 100-meter lead. But I learned more 
about myself in those last two minutes of that race that has enabled me to get through way, way more difficult things in my life than that 1982 Boston Marathon. And what I learned on those streets in Boston 32 years ago is that no matter how difficult the situation you're in is, no matter how high that so-called mountain is to climb, is that you never, ever, ever give up. And as long as you keep moving forward towards that so-called finish line, even in little bitty baby steps, there's always that, that hope. And it's about believing in yourself and having faith and being in the right place at the right time. And as Alberto continued to get further down the road, I, I was, you know, rubbing my hamstring, running the best I could along the right-hand side of the road, and the crowd stepped back to get out of my way to let me come by. And when they did, I happened to be in the right place at the right time, and my right foot came down into this big old pothole that was in the street that I didn't see, and I hit it, and I stumbled and almost fell down. But when I almost fell, it jerked my right leg. It would have jerked my leg. It popped my knot out. So now I had my stride back, but now we're down to like 600 meters to go, and I thought, Dick, you cannot give up now. If you finish second and give it your best, you can hold your head high. But if you give up now, you'll regret it for the rest of your life. And honestly, Julia, never before in any race I'd ever ride or ever since in any race I ever ran after that was I given a gear like I was given at that point. It was like the good Lord looked down and said, I'm going to make this race really interesting. And I started pumping my arms, lifting my legs, and the next thing I know, I was flying. And we turned onto Hereford Street, the road off of Commonwealth, and for every 10 feet Alberta was going, I was going 30. And we were coming to the top of Hereford Street. Now, back then, you made a left-hand turn onto what was called Ring Road. And back then, it was about 150 meters to the finish in front of the Prudential Building uh, back then. And I remember coming around, you know, coming up to that corner, and there was about eight motorcycles that had kind of surrounded Alberto because trying to keep the crowd back and thinking, well, Beardsley's he's done, you know, he's aching back there. Well, they didn't see me coming, so we're turning left, and I, I can't get around the motorcycles. I have to kind of go a little wide and go around them and worry about not getting hit by them. But I, I finally I got around them and caught back up the, to Alberto. And then basically it came down to a 100-meter sprint, and, you know, I got out kicked. Uh, unfortunately, or fortunately, you know, my life has been good, even though I didn't win. Let me tell you, I'm not complaining. Uh, but, you know, we both that day broke the American record and the Boston course record, and it was the first time in history that two men had ever gone under two hours and nine minutes in the same race. But, you know, Alberto won that day, ran two hours, eight minutes, and 51 seconds, and I was right behind him in two hours, eight minutes, and 52.6 seconds. Wow. Yeah. What but, did you, know you what? say to each other when you crossed the finish line? Were there words well, exchanged? There was. You know, first off, we were, for 26.2 miles, we were basically doing everything we could, and especially the last 10 miles, everything we could to put each other into the ground. And But when we finished literally arm in arm, and there were, thank goodness, there were volunteers at the finish line to hold us up because our legs were, neither one of us had anything left, but we embraced, and I just, you know, congratulated Alberto and told him thanks for an amazing race, and he did the same to me, and then, you know, security people grabbed him and me, but him mainly to, to get him over to the podium where the mayor of Boston was and the governor of Massachusetts to present him with one of the most coveted of awards in running, and that's being presented with the Laurel Wreath for winning the Boston Marathon. And I, you know, I, they were trying to get me into the Prudential building garage to talk to the media, but there were so many people inside that finish area and cameras and, you know, newspaper people. And um, But I, I was going by the, the podium where Alberto was with the security people, and I just happened to look up when he was standing up there, and he just happened to look down at the same time and without any hesitation on his part, he reached down and grabbed my arm and he brought me up on that podium with him. And as they held his arm up in victory, 
he held mine right along with it. And that's something I will never, ever forget as long as I live. Mm, that's a special moment for sure. Very special. And, you know, the best part about that whole thing is, you know, over the last number of years, we've become really, really good friends, and he's been a great supporter of our foundation. And uh, it's been fun to watch him coach some of the world's best runners now. Yeah, he's doing pretty amazing work, as are you. So tell listeners, what is your foundation? And stepping back for a second, what was your struggles with addiction that led you to start the Dick Beardsley Foundation in October 2007? Yeah, well, thank you, Julia, for letting me talk about that because it's very close to my heart and my wife Jill's heart. In 19, after I retired from competitive running, I moved back to the farm and and was milking cows, and, and that was my plan. Still running, just not competitively anymore. And then um, on November 13th of 1989, I um, was out doing some work and I had a tractor running and I was augering corn up into a bin and I got uh, wrapped up in some of the farm machinery and it it just it just busted me all up. You know, I broke all my ribs on my right side and punctured my right lung and broke my right arm and had a piece of steel driven into my chest and my left leg was just about torn off and so obviously I was you know I was lucky I survived but I had great surgeons and doctors and nurses and physical therapists and what have you but you know I I was given uh, a pain killer called Demerol and I'd never had you know i never had I never did drugs in my life didn't drink it and now I get this pain medicine it was like wow this is amazing it didn't take the pain away uh, you know, completely, but it was like it made me, like, not even care that I was in pain or anything. But, you know, like most people, you know, I had, you know, I mean, I went through a couple surgeries and rehab and then a bad infection and and after I got home. and But eventually, you know, I, I like most people, I, you know, got off the pain pills and not a problem. Well, then everything was good for a couple of years, and then I got in a bad car accident when a, ra- a lady ran a stop sign on a country road and T-boned my car, and I busted up my back and had you know, two or three back surgeries and, and uh, you know, got into, um, you know, had more narcotics, but again, got off of them. And then, you know, I got back to running and I was, you know, running in Fargo, North Dakota, up by where I'm from. And, and uh, I got hit by a truck and back in the hospital and more surgeries. Well, long story short, I, I, I started getting addicted. I didn't know it, but, you know, using more pills, you know, it took more and more pills to get the same amount of relief. And then even though I didn't need them anymore, you know, it was like, well, gosh, I've had all these injuries and I'm still in pain. And and it just, it snowballed. It just snowballed to the point where, you know, I was going to different doctors to get them. And I was taking them for all the wrong reasons at the time. You know, um, financially, we weren't doing well. Um you know, my then wife, Mary, who I don't have a bad bone in my body for, you know, we were having some difficulties because all the stress that she'd gone through because of all of my injuries and being in the hospital and not having insurance when we had the farm accident and, you know, six-figure hospital bills. And, and I started taking these pills, you know, for all the wrong reasons. And and then, it, and then it, I, I couldn't find any more doctors to get any more pills from, and and then I, I started, you know, stealing them from my dying dad, um, who was dying of pancreatic cancer. And then, you know, after he died, you know, they were gone, and I, I still feel bad to this day what I did, you know. But, you know, when you when you're an addict, you can justify everything. And then I started doing something I never even could imagine think about doing, let alone actually do. And I started to forge prescriptions, you know, sign a doctor's name on fake prescription slips and knowing, knowing I could go to prison, knowing I could lose everything I'd ever worked for in my life. But all that mattered at that point, now we're talking, you know, 1995, 96, all I could, you know, all I cared about was getting the drugs, taking the drugs and making sure I didn't get caught. And, and you know, some people are going to be find this hard to believe but it's honest to God's truth. By August of 1996, I was taking a cocktail of Valium, Percocet, Demerol, 
upwards of 80 to 90 pills a day. And thankfully, on September 30th of 1996, I got caught before I died. And I knew I was in a lot of trouble, but I was so thankful and so blessed that I was still alive. And I knew the only chance I had to get better was to be 100% truthful and take responsibility for my actions. And, and that's what I did. And long story short, I was given five years of probation and uh, 400 hours of community service. And then I, I went right into the hospital, got into a treatment program, and I was in either in, in care, uh, out care, or after care for almost upwards of a year and um, got out. And, and um, so I was so fortunate to have you know, good insurance coverage at the time that said, you know, take this kid and do whatever it takes to get him better. And I go, I was going back to treatment centers, and the one that I went to up in Fargo, in North Dakota, to speak, uh, you know, a few times a year and tell my story and get to chat with some of the people that were in treatment and saw what, you know, what was going on in their lives. And, and some of them, you know, were in outpatient treatment because their insurance wouldn't pay for inpatient when they needed to be there. Others, they could go to outpatient, but only like five sessions. Well, five sessions isn't, you might as well not even go at all. And I thought, gosh, what can I do to, to help people and, and, you know, get better from this terrible disease and, and, and keep it from people going through what I went through. So in 2007, my wife, Jill, and I started the Dick Thursday Foundation. Now, one of our initial plans was, you know, was to raise a bunch of money and anybody that, you know, came to us that needed treatment but didn't have the dollars or insurance to cover it that our foundation would be able to, to cover that. Well, unfortunately, um, that hasn't been the case. When we started our foundation, the economy wasn't the best. But part of it, I think even more of the problem is there's such um, stigma placed on chemical dependency. You know, it's like all, people are almost like afraid to donate to a cause like that because, gosh, if somebody finds out donate into the Dick Thurzer Foundation and you find out what it is, it's about people with um, addiction to drugs or alcohol, but man, they're going to think that I must be have a problem or my kids or spouse does. And so that's been a little difficult, but we have been able to raise enough money. I get requests all the time from schools across the country that would love to have me come out and share my story to their students and faculty, but, you know, schools now are so their budgets are so tight that they barely have enough money to, to have enough teachers. And, and so this, it's enabled, the foundation has enabled me, enabled me to travel to schools and, and tell my story to, to these kids because, you know, kids think, you know, drugs are no big deal. Yeah, I can use them for fun and then I'll be fine. Well, I tell the story and it, it wakes them up. And so in that sense, the foundation has truly been uh, very successful and we just keep plugging along and raising as much money as we can and, and trying to do the best we can to get the word out there because, you know, chemical dependency, especially to uh, prescription uh, drugs, is the most rampant increase in drug addictions that's going on right now. So uh, we need to get that word out there. Very much so. What do you see as the connection between the long-distance running mindset and someone who becomes addicted? Because both are very extreme personality behaviors. Yeah, they are. I, you know, obviously I have an addictive personality, and I didn't realize this. Both my parents were alcoholics. God bless them. My dad had 14 and a half years of sobriety before he died. I, and I know now that with their alcoholism that that the siblings, like myself and my two sisters, something like this could possibly happen. I don't put one ounce of blame on my parents. In fact, I saw what alcohol did to them. That's why I didn't drink, and, and yet I became addicted to these drugs. But, um, you know, with, with I think to be a, a really top, top runner, I think you have to have a little bit of an addictive personality to be able to, to get up every single day and, and run not just once, but you run twice a day no matter what the weather, no matter what time of the day to get your run in. And I think, I think an addictive personality can be a good thing if you keep it under control, but it can also be a bad thing if you let it get out of control and start consuming your life. And that's kind of what happened to me with 
with uh, the drug addiction. So I think they they kind of kind of correlate quite well. Mm. And give me at least just one school or one encounter that's been really powerful for you and where you've shared your story and where you really feel like it's helped profound healing. Boy, there's been, you know, there's been so many, but I'll never um, forget. It was a year ago, um, a year ago last September, I was up in Portland, Maine. I was up there for two things. One was to uh, to speak um, on behalf of New Balance at the Portland uh, Marathon up there, but I also went, I can't think of the town now, but it's a it's a town just north of Portland, and I went and spoke to the high school there. It was amazing. There were 600 kids, and I got done, and they all stood up, were clapping and cheering, and, and some of them were crying. And then I, I I stayed around afterwards out in the cafeteria and signed posters, and kids came up to me and and were sharing their stories, and some of them were crying, and 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 they were you know like gosh, you just I'm gonna save my life, and you know, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna quit doing drugs, and or I had a number of kids come up and say, oh, my, my, my dad or mom are addicted, and and this is giving me hope that they can get better, and and then they had me go and speak with a young boy that was maybe a ninth or tenth grader that was expelled from school, but now was getting his life together, and I spent about 30 minutes privately in a teacher's office, just him and I, and he, and he told me a story about he was getting narcotics and, and taking them and selling them and all this kind of stuff. And and um, and so I sat there and just, you know, listened, and then I told him my story. And and uh, I got a, you know, I've gotten some updates from his teachers and from him over the last year and a half, and, and he's doing really well. And so that one really sticks out, but there's, I, there isn't a time at any schools I've been to when I haven't got a kids coming up to me and just and sharing their story right to me. You know, kids that teachers would say normally wouldn't say a word about this to anybody, yet they opened up to me, which is, you know, really a neat thing. But but even if I'm speaking at a convention somewhere to a bunch, you know, a, a thousand salespeople, a lot of times I'll bring my addiction in to get a certain point across, believe it or not, coming when it comes about sales, maybe about the not giving up part. I can't remember the last time if I've mentioned my addiction in a talk that people haven't come up to me and 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 talked about their their addiction problems that they had or have or a parent or a, a friend or a coworker or a spouse or a sibling. It's just amazing how many people are affected by it, yet it's so taboo to talk about it. So that's one of the things that we try to do with our foundation is to bring it out in the open and talk about it. Because if we talk about it, maybe some things will get done to make things better. But if we just kind of sweep it under the rug like it's been done for literally for years and years and years, it's only going to continue to get worse. Totally, totally. And what has been the role of running in your healing process from addiction? Well, it's been... That's one thing, you know, I've been running for 41 years now, and, I mean, I I can't even dream running two weight marathons anymore. In fact, my fastest runs now are what would have been my easiest of easy recovery days back when I was, you know, in my 20s. But, you know, I go to bed at night, and I can hardly wait to get up in the morning to go out for my run. Now, I, I wake up at 3.30, quarter to 4 every morning, just like I did. I haven't milked the cow since 19... 92, but that internal clock still goes off, and I get up, and I tell you what, it's I, I get up, I have a cup of coffee, let the dogs out, I go out for a run. Usually, you know, I'm out for at least an hour, most times a little longer than that, and um, and it's I'm out there all by myself. It's early in the morning. Nobody's up. There's no traffic. I get to see the you know, if I run long enough, I get to see the world kind of come alive, you know, with the birds starting to chirp as we start getting towards dawn. And and it's my little time that I can just reflect and be thankful. What is ahead for 2014? Are there any races that you're training for? I know it sounds like you have a lot of morning runs that you really love, but are you training specifically for anything right now? 
Well, I'm not really training for anything specifically, but, um, you know, I've had a couple knee replacements, and um, my my right knee that I had replaced, gosh, over five years ago now, it's never, ever given me a problem. But my left knee that I had replaced, well, about three and a half years ago, you know, that's the leg that got all mangled in the farm accident. And, uh, boy, that's it's been giving me some grief. Um, you know, they went in last June about 10 months ago, and they kind of did a partial revision of it and hoping that that would help. And But it's just continually, you know, gotten worse and worse. And I finally went to the doctor a week ago, and, and they did some a bone scan on Monday, and I'm just waiting to hear the results. It's, you know, I, I, I go out and run, but, it, I mean, it, it hurts constantly, and uh, which, I'll be honest with you, it takes the fun away. And I, you know, I don't know what if they're, you know, to me, I, I hope they just go back in there and there's a, a couple other things they could do to hopefully fix it up. So right now, you know, I, I still want to, I still want to run at least one more marathon and try to get into three hours there. Andy Burfoot from runner's world kind of lit a fire into my, my behinder <laughs> about a year and a, a year or so ago. He called me up and he put together, he's put together this list of people that, have run under three hours in five consecutive decades, and he thought I might be uh, might be one of those. Well, I've run one in the 70s, 80s, 90s to 2000s, but I haven't run I haven't run a marathon in this decade, and so that just got me, you know, thinking, okay, I I, I got to do this, and so, you know, I I, I been I would I've been running like 70 plus miles a week and and stuff, but um, so now uh, I'm just going to have to wait to see what the deal is with my, my left knee because the, the one thing I don't want to do, I, I, you know, if it means to where they have to go back in and do something and, and the doctor says, okay, Dick, here's the deal. You know, I'm going to let you run, but, you know, maybe no more than three or five, four or five miles a day, none of this 70-plus miles a week. Um, otherwise, you know, things are not going to be good with that knee. I, I'd be – okay with that i but what i won't don't want to do i don't want to you know you know do something that could permanently you know perhaps keep me from from running again and that's always a possibility when you're dealing with artificial knees and if that's the case i'll you know i guess i'll ride my elliptical you know every day instead of running every day but um but what i do is like you know i, I speak at a lot of you know marathons and other races around the country every year so when i go to those events I uh, I always run something. Usually, if I, if I go to a marathon, I, I'll run the half, and you know I try to be as competitive as, as I can be in my. You know, I'm 58 now, and uh, I used to be a lot more competitive, but now since I've had my knees done, I you know I just don't have the the strength that I used to have, and 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 the speed and whatnot, which is okay. I mean, I you know I go out and do it, give it my very best, and and um, sometimes it it places me in, in the in my age group and other times uh, it doesn't but uh, at the end of the day if you know you know I know that I went out there and gave it everything I had and that's uh, how can you complain about that right great are you going to be at Boston and do you have any predictions of who you think it's who is going to win well I'm not going to be at Boston this year unfortunately um, but I, I but which is not such a bad thing because I wouldn't be running it, and this way I can sit at home in front of my TV set and watch it live on Universal, you know, television, which I'm excited about. I, it's, you know, I'm excited for Boston. I think on the on the women's side, it's going to be great to see um, uh, Des, uh, well, Lyndon now, I guess her name is, was Davilia, but, uh, you know, coming back after that injury she had, and I think, I don't know if she's got it in the kind of shape right now to, to have a chance to, to win it, but I think, you know, seeing Shalane Flanagan, I was speaking at the Gate River Run, the 15K National Championships a few weeks ago in Jacksonville, Florida, and, you know, she smashed the U.S. record and just was, I mean, she ran like 47.03 or something like that and just, I mean, blew the women's field away by over two minutes. And, you know, she's from the Boston area, and I know she wants that, a victory at Boston like no other. So I think she's got a chance to be right up there. And on the men's side, you know, boy, 
it's it's hard it's hard to compete against the East Africans because you know they've won that race so many times and they're so good and they kind of work together. But you know you don't cut out some of the Americans. You know you got you got Med Kapleski and you know I don't know that Med can can run with those Africans. But but if it's you know to me the worse the weather is the better the chance the Americans have of actually you know winning at least on the men's side. And then you know Ryan Hall hasn't who hasn't finished a marathon in a couple of years, you know, as of right now, anyhow, he's in the race. So that's going to be uh, interesting to see how he does. So, you know, whoever wins, I, I'd love to see an American win it on the men and women's side. Uh, it's been way too long for either to an American man or woman to win, but it, it's always such just a, a fun race to watch. And uh, I'm looking forward to that day coming up pretty soon. As am I. To close up our interview, I have a few fun either-or questions. Okay. Apples or oranges? Apples? What do you mean, apples or oranges? Which which one do you prefer? Which one do you prefer to eat? Oranges. Early bird or night owl? Oh, definitely early bird. Smoothies or juices? Oh, man. I don't drink much of either, but probably if I'd say, I'd probably go with a smoothie. Mountains or oceans? Uh, Mountains. Mountains? Great. Thank you so much, Dick, for sharing your story, inspiration, wisdom on the Running on Own podcast. Thank you, Julie. It's been a pleasure to be out with you and keep up the good work. Thanks for listening to episode 33 of the Running on Ohm podcast with Dick Beardsley, former professional runner, motivational speaker, and author. Check out runningonohm.com for links to Dick's sites. If you would like to help others find the Running on Ohm podcast, feel free to leave a review on iTunes. This is your host, Julia Hanlon, and I hope you have a beautiful day.